Dead Headspace. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brendan LaFaro. Hello, everybody. And today we have author, martial artist, and more, Jonathan Mayberry. Hi, guys. Uh, Jonathan, we'd like to start out by asking our guests what got you into horror, and you're, you're, you got such a wide variety of things we could ask, but I figure that probably is the best one to go with. Well, my grandmother got me into horror. She was, if you can imagine Luna Lovegood from the Harry Potter books as an old lady, that's my grandmother. <laughs> she believed in absolutely everything: witches, vampires, ghosts, ghouls, goblins. She believed in everything, and but also. You know, when I was a kid, she not only told me those stories and got me interested in, you know, the things that go bump in the night and had me read a lot of it. But she also told me a lot about the anthropology and um, uh, and some even some of the archaeology that, that is attached to this because she wanted me to have context. She wanted me to believe that all of that stuff was part of what she called the larger world, that it was actually in its own way natural. So I got involved in, in horror that way. And then from there, I started watching monster movies as a kid and you know, reading horror books. Oh, is that when you say monster movies, uh, are you talking about universal monster movies? Uh, universal, you know, definitely. I was, you know, I was born in the fifties, raised in the sixties. So, um, we also had the early hammer films, um, heavily edited for um, American television. (laughs) Uh, we had, we had dark shadows on TV. We had, uh, uh, the outer limits. We still had reruns of the twilight zone. I mean, we had, we had, there was a lot of good horror back then. And plus, a stack of EC comics my brother had left me when he went off to Vietnam. That makes sense. I, I, I had a strong sneaking suspicion you were an EC comics guy. Um, In fact, one of the things I did a couple of years ago is Dark Horse Comics has been re-releasing or re-released Vault of Shadows and the other books in hardcover editions. I actually wrote the forward to one of those. I didn't know that. That's very cool. What issue is that? Volume three or Vault of Horror. As far as Twilight Zone goes, I can relate. I mean, I, I'm a 90s kid, but my godfather, uh, you wouldn't know him in anything. He's just an independent actor, but he always said, listen to commentary, free lesson, which I later applied to writing. Um, and he also got me into Twilight Zone. And that, that cool. holds, it holds up today. It, everything it does. about it. So does the original Outer Limits, which was, of the two, my favorite of the two. Because hmm. it was more science fiction-y with some horror, whereas Twilight Zone was more fantasy with a little science fiction horror. Um, though now, as an older, well, older, 60-something, um, Twilight Zone is a little more um, influential on me than hmm. Outer Limits. But it, it was Outer Limits was the show I watched a lot in the 60s. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty neat. Um, today, you made a really neat announcement about... The Weird Tales exception. So just so for those that aren't aware, uh, this is an exaggeration for any kind of emphasis. You had 10,000 submissions and, yep. and you had to pick one. Um, yep. <laughs> what? Uh, excuse I apologize if I got his first name wrong. James Bible? Jake. Jake, Jake Bible. Bible. Is that his, that's his surname, Bible? Yeah, Bible. That's that's, that's neat. And, so, and he's from the South, so you know it seems. But, uh, Jake Jake wrote a really good story. There were a lot of really good stories, and there were some stories that were really exceptional, but they hewed a little too close to things we'd already bought for that issue. You know, I've got stuff from Sean McGuire and and uh, Dacre Stoker and and other people. Um, so we had to make sure it was something that's not going to wasn't going to hit the same theme, mm-hmm. but also was an exceptional story. And and um, there were. About 25 that I wish I could have bought all of them, but we had one slot to fill. 
how do you do that? How do you I because I hear from so many seasoned authors, be a slush reader, it helps you become better. But ten thousand, how do you do that? Well, first of all, um, a lot of them never made it past uh, me opening the email for a couple oh, reasons. And we have writer's guidelines, which explain what you're supposed to write, the format, the the, the genre, the, the word length, everything else. And uh, I'd open emails. You know, we said we wanted something up to 5,000 words. I'd get or up, I'm sorry, up to 8,000 words. I'd get stuff. that's 25,000 words. I'd get novels. I'd get flash fiction. I'd get poetry. None of the, I mean, it may be good flash fiction, poetry, whatever, but I'm not going to read it because that's not what I'm buying. I'm buying a short story. Mm. And we'd also get stuff that's clearly just straight science fiction or straight horror or straight fantasy, but doesn't have the weird element to it. I got a lot of stuff that was weirdly in the wrong font. You know, everyone's allowed to have their house rules because it's Mm -hmm. a hoop. We want people to jump through to show that they pay attention to our guidelines and also are serious pros because pros follow the rules in, in that regard. But we get stuff, you know, like in comic stands for if we get stuff in all italics. Uh, wrong font size, wrong everything. And it's like those just got, I mean, that was thousands got eliminated just because they didn't read the freaking uh, guidelines. Wow. What that, what was that. left was still a whole lot. So I had um, our, our, our editorial assistant, Dana Fredsty, read a bunch. I read a bunch. And then when we finally, you know, it took uh, over a month for us to get it down to a smaller group of about 100 stories. And they, uh, but a lot of them were from people I know. So to keep it from being biased, I got three colleagues who are really good writers, all of them have some editing experience, but who aren't necessarily um, in the horror community. So they read through that list and they gave me a list of, of top 10. And then I reread those top 10 and picked Jake's story. OK, wow. That sounds like an intense month. <laughs> yes. People wonder why writers drink. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, what's your drink of choice? Oh, actually, water. This is unsweetened iced tea. But when it comes to alcohol, yeah, I'm a big fan of good old bourbons, and I like I like there are definitely some good bourbons out there. Mm. Um, but my cocktail of choice is a Bombay Sapphire Martini, straight up three olives, hint of vermouth. Very specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very specific. <laughs> uh, I don't know too many martini drinkers who aren't specific about it. I mean, there, there's a way we like it, and that you know that's fair because yeah. me, I, I like. I'm a regular Irish American. I just like whatever, as long as it's alcohol. <laughs> and I like wheat beers too, you know. Okay. So not an IPA fan, but I'm a wheat beer guy. Uh, I don't know a lot of IPA fans. <laughs> Seems to be a recurring theme in the horror community is the anti-IPA statement. <laughs> yeah, and my son, who doesn't watch a lot of horror, doesn't read horror, is an IPA guy, so I think that proves the model. Right there. What are you drinking, by the way? I just saw that bottle just go up and down real quick. Sam Summer. Oh, nice. Nice. Good choice. So uh, last year, um, and I bring this up just in case anyone's like, hey, you already asked that. Uh, Last year, I interviewed you when issue 363 came out um, for Weird Tales magazine. Mm -hmm. I bring that up because um, there are the answers were stellar. But I just I'm curious, since this is a different type of format, maybe there will be a little bit expansion. on it. And even if there isn't, that's still fine. so if, if you're okay with it, I just got like four. Okay, cool. How did you get involved with Weird Tales? Um, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated version of the story because there's a lot of different ways. But um, event, what it boils down is they reached out to me. Uh, there's a new group that, that took over Weird Tales. Uh, they reached out to me originally to write a story for them. 
Um, and I wrote a, an ep- I had written, never written a good old fashioned swords and sorcery story. And I wrote one for them um, with a new character that I'm, I, I figure I'll, I'll, I'll pursue at some point. And then shortly after they, um, they, they got the story, they said, well, you know, we're, we're actually, we, we'd like some help picking, you know, crafting the magazine. And I said, well, you know, if you're talking about me being involved in the editorial side of things, I have, I have some requirements and my requirements are, um, much as I love the Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard stories and so on, um, as, you know, I grew up with them. We there are a lot of them that have a lot of racism, sexism, and homophobia in there, and those are three buttons of mine. You know, granted, mm-hmm. I'm a straight white male, but my my my, I'm, I'm a big one for tolerance, not intolerance. So I said, you right. know, the stories can have those elements because sometimes you need to explore that in the story. You can't write a story about racism without having racism in the story, right? But if it show if it's the if if it becomes clear that that's the viewpoint of the writer and it's informing the story, which you see a lot with Lovecraft um, and with Howard, uh, then no, I'm not going to do that. I, I want stories that also go beyond um, just the standard, you know, white male viewpoint. Mm. Um, not that not to the exclusion of any group, but to include as many groups, uh, different races, different sexual orientations, different countries. Uh, you know, what scares us and what what we define as weird is different depending on who's telling that story. So uh, I said, I I would want to curate the issue if I'm going to do it or I'm not involved. And they said, okay. So they let me curate the issue. Uh, I was editorial director for the first issue, but actually I was the editor. The the name editor was actually stepping down. So Mm. I actually edited that issue and now I'm the, the official editor of Weird Tales. And I've, again, curated the next issue and the one after that. The one thing about Weird Tales, though, is we were hoping to be able to put out an issue every couple of months. But our principal financial backer died. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, taking all of the finances uh, with her. So we no longer had all that that money. So we, you know, it it delayed everything by by over a year. And so our next issue will actually probably be in October. And then we'll be publishing a little more often after that. Okay, and these questions are actually for selfish reasons, but I feel like people will also be interested. Um, I loved it. I wanted to buy. I, I was hoping I could buy like a bundle annual package. Is that ever going to be an option? I have no idea. Okay, I'm so not involved. Okay. With the, I, I believe there's something on the website. It's uh, um, I think it's uh, weirdtales.net. I believe it is. I believe there's something there on it, but I I'm not part of that end of things i'm just the guy picking the stories oh, okay uh, um you know the publisher and, and so on. in fact we're gonna have a meeting on this pretty soon because we're gonna be making some announcements about things like subscriptions and uh some of the the cool things that are happening as a result of it some of which i can't talk about now but it's really really cool some things i can like we we're now doing an auto audio version of each issue the first oh. one's already out um and uh that will be really cool and we're gonna get a couple other fun things that we have planned so that's a little bit of TV and film interest. That's going to be one of my questions is the whole history of Weird Tales. It covers, at this point, a century, I believe, or close to, what, starting 20 or 29? 23. Oh, okay. So close to a century. There's a lot of interest in that avenues you could pursue as far as film goes. Um, I, I'm not going to. Clearly, you're not going to talk about that now, so I'm not going well, to talk about here's, that. Here's what I will say. Um, we're more interested in pursuing film and TV based on the stories that appear in our new issues. Oh. Um, because they speak to the current sensibility of Weird Tales. 
and we have some great stuff. Like Victor Laval just won a Bram Stoker Award for his yeah. story. And he was actually the first writer I asked because specifically for him. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, he wrote a story, a novella a couple of years ago, a few years ago, called The Ballad of Black Tom, right. where he had taken one of H.P. Lovecraft's most overtly racist stories and retold it from the point of view of the black character. And it was a gut punch of a story. Um, got on everybody's best of list. And, and uh, uh, so when I said I'd agree to do Weird Tales, I said, I'm going to start by first person I want to call was Vic, Victor Laval. So I called him and I said, hey, Vic, you know, you you uh, you bruised people with that foul of Black Tom. How about you come and draw some blood for Weird Tales? And he was like, oh, fuck yeah, man. And he did. And that story, Up From Slavery, is brutal. Oh, my God, what a great story. Um, and then we had Lisa Morton write a great story about, you know, the problems of being, you know, like the domestic model for, you know, like the, the wife stays at home model. Mm-hmm. That whole thing was explored. We had we had some fun going in, in some interesting new directions. And the next issue, we, you know, we've got, again, another lineup of fantastic talent going in other directions. So, yeah, there's film interest and TV interest, um, both. But it's going to be based on what we're producing now. It's our Weird Tales. That's smart. So I imagine legality wise, you got it like under control. Um, now for Victor's story, that that was the first issue for Weird Tales I've ever read. I'm just a history guy, so I'm also I was like kind of interested in. I've read about all the authors and their past, the major ones um, from the 30s and 40s, what have you. Mm-hmm. But uh, Weird Tales 363 was the first full front to back I read. I loved everything about it because like you start off with um. I, I forgot her name. I gotta look at my notes. Margaret Bull, um, uh, Brundage. That's it. Margaret Brundage. Uh, the cover that was, in, yep, there it is. So for just audio listeners, it's a. Uh, yeah. See, here's the original Margaret Brundage painting from a cover of Weird Tales. Mm-hmm. So we had an artist do an homage to it. Right, and that was pretty awesome, and it got me interested to learn about Margaret, and she's like the queen of of pulp fiction covers. I've, oh my I, looked, God. I looked at her artwork. It's amazing. Yes. Do, you have the, do you have the book? Um, uh, the, the book of Margaret Brundage artwork. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, have it around somewhere, but I also have a, an actual copy of the original weird tales. For one of her covers. Oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. What is that's there, let me guess from the thirties. Yeah. This was uh, September, 1933. And it's a Robert E. Howard story, a Conan story, The Slithering Shadow. That's so cool. And with a Margaret Brundage cover. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Our, our next cover is going to be a little different. Uh, I can't drop the information yet, but it's, it's going to be cool. But we're, we're going to have a cool thing with that next cover. Once we've finished, you know, get the cover all, all ready, we're going to do a contest where we'll publish the art that's going to be on the cover and have, and have people submit flash fiction based on that a piece of art because the art does not belong to any story and then whoever we pick that story will be in that issue issue 364 that was actually going to be my next question because um i um i, I just bring it up because you just talked about but i did submit to that too that was pretty neat and as someone that's like i'm in a weird place where i'm not new to writing but i'm also not like this guy with a long track uh record so it's like hey that's really that's a that's interesting approach because you guys can potentially have a new name where you're like, yeah, we were one of the first to publish him or her. Um, and it's for Weird Tales, which is like the yeah. go-to magazine. And that's that's one of our goals. You know, aside from the big names that, that I'm bringing in, um, I do want to bring in some some either writers who either it's their first publication or 
it's the first major publication. Like um, we, we have a sword and sorcery story in issue 364 um, from uh, Marguerite Reed. And she, you know, she had one novel out, um, had a couple short stories, but she's not very well known. Mm. Um, and she won a Philip K. Dick Award, you know, some years ago for the novel. But, you know, that's that's a whole different genre, different audience. And I asked her to write a, a sword and sorcery story for me. And it's a it's a uniquely female voice for writing short, a sword and sorcery. She's not trying to write a Conan story with a woman instead of Conan. It's okay. a uniquely female story. And it's it's really great. But that that's that's the sort of thing we're going to do. We're bringing these new voices out, and letting people discover these people, you know, these writers. And also give the writers a, a, a more international platform so that, that hopefully it, it can jump them forward a bit. Yeah, re- myself reading, um, me and Brennan, we actually got really big into Australian authors, and they got so many neat things to offer. Um, I got other friends that are into, he referred to it as the Chinese Lovecraft minus the racism. Um, I nice. forget the author's name, but just listening to. Are you talking about Lee Murray by any chance? Mm-hmm. I remember on the cover, it was like a weird mutant snake person. I don't know if it was Lee Mari. Sounds like Lee. Um, Into the Mist. um, A couple books she's done. Anyway, she's uh, one of of New Zealand's uh, top science fiction writers. Okay. uh, Horror writers. She's run like a whole bunch of their Julius Vogel Awards. But Australia has a lot of good uh, science fiction and fantasy writers. I mean, that's the point. There's a lot of writers all over the world. Mm. We want to be able to draw those voices in and, and use weird tales to, to amplify that, you know. Absolutely. And um, I did notice uh, on the weird – because I've been following weird tales when you guys – I don't know if you just brought back the Facebook group or if it's new, but I joined it when the new issue came out, and – I I didn't have personally, I didn't have any issues with what you said about how what your goals are, uh, with what you just described, like leaving out the racism stuff. Uh, maybe it's because it's social media, but I saw some weird like remarks about people having issues, people oh, yeah. putting words in your mouth, like, "Hey, well, the last editor, she she was great." Like you didn't say that she wasn't. Uh, yeah, th- th- that's the thing. And and Vandermeer was last editor. She was brilliant. She's yeah. w- her run on Weird Tales is my favorite run on Weird Tales, and I've always been a big fan of hers. And I've spoken long before I was involved in Weird Tales, spoken about it. But uh, she, you know, the people who were running the magazine before fired her and it was unfair it was badly done left a bad taste in people's mouths and again that was the old regime you know mm. i don't want to be blamed for for what someone else did so, and i'm not going to take the blame for it i'm not going to be an apologist for someone who's not even part of the magazine anymore um so i, I got slammed a little bit you know if if people want to use social media to slam me unfairly go ahead you know it's social media um the thing that matters to me was for every negative comment, and there were maybe 30 or 40 scattered through different platforms, thousands and thousands of people excited about the, uh, the new direction of Weird Tales. Mm. So the, sometimes the cranky voices are the ones who yell loudest, but they aren't necessarily the ones who are representative of, of what people think out there. Yeah, because, again, I'm a 90s kid. I, I, didn't, I wasn't a kid that was into Fangoria and all that. I don't, I don't know why. I just watch horror films and horror TV, but... I mean, if I'm a kid or I mean, I'm in my 30s, like this is a great time to be jumping into the Weird Tales uh, wagon. It really is. Um, it really is. I just had one more question about it. Um, so in the interview, I, I asked you a question and you had such a crazy cool answer. Uh, I asked you something along the lines of uh, what your history with the magazine is. And I forget who your mentor is, but could you go over that? 
Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's very complicated because, again, there's a couple of different ways in which I got involved in Weird Tales. But the main thing is um, I, I was uh, kind of the hairy little mascot for a couple of different groups of professional writers. My middle group, my middle school librarian was a, was uh, their secretary, a group that met in Philly, where I grew up, and one that met in New York. The Philly group, known as the Hyborian Legion, uh, was Elspregde Camp, who, you know, the guy who took the, the unfinished Conan manuscripts and brought Conan back in the 50s and 60s. Um, Harlan Ellison was there. Uh, a bunch of other folks were, were there, you know, whoever was in town at the time. And we were uh, at Harlan's, uh, at um, DeCamp's house in Villanova, I believe it was. And um, a, a little stone statue fell off the shelf and hit me in the head. And I picked it up and said, what the hell is this? Because it was his face with tentacles all over it. And um, DeCamp said, that's that's uh, Cthulhu. And uh, Harlan Nelson said, no, it's Cthulhu. And they got into a screaming match about it. And I'm like, who the, who the hell is this? So they introduced me to the whole idea of, of uh, cosmic horror and so on. Um, and one of the things that, that at, at the end of that is uh, DeCamp gave me some issues of Weird Tales to go home and read. And under a sentence of death, if I if I damage them, now, granted, this, this was the uh, this was 1971. So the issues were not quite as antique as they are now. Right. But I was very careful, brought them back. Um, and then, you know, I, I, they started talking to me about weird tales. And Lynn Carter was there who had written a book about Lovecraft. Um, August Derleth was August. No, I'm sorry. Robert Block was there. Oh, wow. so it, was, it was a really interesting group. And the New York version of, of their group uh, didn't have a, a name, but it was Ray Bradbury, Richard Matheson, Avram Davidson, Lee Brackett, people like that. And uh, it was pretty insane. I, I, I got to be mentored by all these folks as a kid. And that I have been grateful for that my entire life. Oh, I oh, OK, I'm just going to say I'm legend. Because I read it in this Stephen, one of Stephen King's books. I, I forget which nonfiction book, but he yeah, said I'm – okay, that has to be it. Yeah, he lists like so many great books and authors. I am legend. He talks so highly of it. I got it. I bought it right away, and I'm like, I'm in love with this. You, you listed off like all the biggest stars of that of those decades. Well, Matheson is interesting. Matheson and Bradbury are the two most influential uh, mentors I had, um, and Matheson – probably the single most influential on how I structured my entire career because his whole thing was, you know, don't be, don't be pigeonholed. If you like to write horror, write horror. But if you want to try something else, don't say, Oh, I'm a horror writer and I can't do that. Go do it. Because if you think of his books, I mean, you have, I am legend, uh, what dreams may come, stare of echoes, uh, um, God shrinking man, legend of hell house. You know, he's, he's all over the place in terms of his genre. Mm. And, um, well, for Christmas 1972, he gave me a signed 1954 edition of I Am Legend, oh my which God. is in a safe deposit box. Uh, Bradbury, the same year, gave me a signed first edition of Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, oh, so jealous. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was, I, the funny thing is, the first time I met Bradbury, I was, I was 12. First time I met him, I had no idea who he was because I hadn't been introduced to his work before. So right. the librarian is, this is Ray Bradbury. And I'm like, oh, are you a writer, too? And Harlan uh, Ellison fucking died when I said that he is he's <laughs> over there like, just about to piss himself. And Bradbury's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I've taken a swing at it once or twice. Yeah. Later on, I, I realized what, how monumentally stupid a question that was. Hey, I was 12. You know, what can I say? 
That's hilarious. Fahrenheit 451. That's one of the greatest science fiction books I've ever read, man. Yeah, and uh, very influential book. I would say for probably most writers. And is did he have the same attitude as Richard Matheson? Because it, it feels like he did, because – because Ray Bradbury wrote in whatever the fuck you want to write. Yeah, in. well, the thing, one of the things Bradbury told me was a writer writes. That's as far as you should define it. Whatever comes along, um, and you know he's he he wrote science fiction, fantasy, mysteries, uh, westerns. He wrote for Weird Tales. Early Bradbury stuff was in, in Weird the Tales. Fifties, I think, right? Yeah. And what's fun about that? My other history with Weird Tales. My wife's grandfather. Uh, Oscar J. Friend, who was a Pulp Fiction writer, editor, and literary agent, was the literary agent for almost all of the, the guys in the 40s and 50s who wrote for Weird Tales. Uh, the the wow. Ian O'Binder, the, uh, the two Binder brothers who did the Adam Link stories, the robot I've, stories. I've only heard of them. I don't know. I... If you ever saw the original Outer Limits, there was an episode with Leonard Nimoy about a, a robot who accidentally who finds a guy dead and he's put on trial um, – for his life, you know, they think he's he's a murderer, and Leonard Nimoy is the defense attorney defending him. But it's based on, on those stories. Manly Wade Wellman, who pretty much pioneered the Appalachian horror genre. Mm. You know, all these guys were um, uh, clients of the Otis Klein agency for which her grandfather was the junior partner. So I have boxes and boxes of stuff from the agency because I wound up inheriting all the stuff because nobody in the family knew what they were. I got all their contracts, the correspondence. I got note, handwritten notes back and forth with Isaac Asimov because they were they were selling the very first foreign rights for science fiction writers. And he's like, oh, nobody in Europe's going to want to read American science fiction. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, Ike, but you may have been wrong about that. You know? But um, but he was in uh, Oscar Friend was involved in Weird Tales as well, you know, mm-hmm. as kind of a, an advisor and, and talent scout for it. Um, so I went up not only being involved in Weird Tales from my own past but from my wife's side of the of, of things as well. You were, I mean, if I'm writing a story, man, you're destined. It's like, it makes sense as an author, like he should end up running the next regime of <laughs> tales. Well, it, it, my life has, has not always been pleasant, but it has never been boring. Um, and uh, I have been very, very fortunate, very, and I'm very grateful about uh, the, the people I've met along the way who have been influential, you know, people who have directly mentored me or have just simply served as really great examples for me, um, which was good because I, I came from a very troubled neighborhood, very troubled family, uh, you know, really abusive home. And this the people I met along the way kind of helped nudge me in the right direction, told me that I'm like one of the things that I learned from Bradbury Matheson is that, you know, if you don't like your life, revise it, rewrite it into the version of it you want to be. So as a kid, I'm like, well, I define myself as a knocked around kid. Why not define myself as a writer? And that's one of the things they told me is as a writer gets to imagine worlds and write them and, and be the god of each world you create. And, you know, go do that. Who cares what your childhood is? You, you know, use it as rocket fuel to, fuel to go somewhere else. So. so so fiction saved your reality. And it, I guarantee that. You're responsible for someone probably and many someone's in your situation, like kids that are probably not loving their life and reading what you write. And they're inspired, man. It, it, it's well, got to. Yeah, I've been pretty frank about you know, when, I, when I talk to groups of kids, because I write, you know, young adult uh, stuff, too. When I talk to groups of kids, I don't I don't pull any punches about, you know, how life, how hard life can be, because I know a lot of them 
like I was last year, I was down in Brownsville, Texas, right on the border. And a lot of these kids, you know, their their families are a mess. They're dirt poor. You know, they got a, you know real hard lives. Uh, a lot of them are, are mixed race and they're getting you know bullied and 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 uh, having a lot of a lot of intolerance just because of of their of their you know their ethnic background and so on. And it's bullshit, you know. But they don't get to hear from people who have been through um, hard stuff because a lot of people who go to schools and talk try to give them sanitized versions of the world. Like everything is, is roses and puppies. Fuck that. I mean, I came up hard and um, you can either be defined by your childhood or you can make yourself into the version of you you want to be. And that's what I talk about. So I don't know if I have directly influenced, but I've tried to. I've tried to be directly frank with them and say, look. I came from from a shit environment. You, you know, you're coming from a tough environment. If I can do it, you can do it. That's no, great. No, there's no proof that you can't do it. Yeah, Brandon. I'd I'd say it's just a numbers game too. I mean, I you you said I don't know, you know, for sure that I've I've made a difference, but I you know I would place a bet that you have, and I and I would place a bet that it's been more than once that the 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 kids they need to hear that they need to hear the fact that. I had it tough and, you know, and it sucked. And I, I, I picked myself up by the bootstraps because that's kind of what you have to do. Um, I worked my ass off and I, you know, I wrote my own story is basically what it comes down to. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't do it to try to, you know, I, I, if somebody comes and tells me that I was a good influence on that, that's really wonderful to hear. I don't do it for that reason. I do it to actually try to influence people. I don't need the accolade. Um, what's What's interesting though is the thing that I that I've I've seen the most um, is that some of my books encourage kids to read who don't necessarily read. Uh, the Rotten Ruin books, my my post apocalyptic zombie series. Uh, I've actually won a whole bunch of awards from around the country from uh, state statewide awards. As, uh, for that book, because it's a book that re- that encourages reluctant readers to read, and that's friggin' wonderful. You know, to, to excite a kid enough about reading that they don't just read your book; they go and read any book they can grab. That is one of the that, that's worth more than any paycheck I'll ever get. That's that's incredible. That's uh, a couple awesome. times I've been I've, I've I may have ugly cried a little bit about that. <laughs> that that's <laughs> no, a valid I'll, um, reason to. You, you you made a comment before. You said I'm not doing it for the accolades, and uh, I, I I apologize, but I'm gonna pour some more accolades on my um. I don't think I've mentioned this before on our show, but my uh, older son is dyslexic, and he's we had pulled him to homeschool about three years ago. He just really really tough time reading. Um, they were clocking him at a kindergarten level at the end of second grade, and we just we couldn't get him to love reading it was just it was so hard for him and it was so frustrating to him and um we eventually stumbled on um a couple series of books the two that stick out to me um were the for any case stein books by a guy named jim benton um written in just such a way with a lot of illustrations for you know a kid that really requires those visuals sure um but an, an interesting kind of fun, almost, you know, kind of horror sci-fi story. Uh, the other one that sticks out is the, you know, the Dog Man and the uh, Captain Underpants books. And the guy who wrote those, and I'm spacing on the name right now, yeah. um, will detail, you know, his kind of uh, 
battle almost with with ADHD and how creating those comics, creating those stories um, really kind of helped him uh, learn to love to read. Um, I hope I'm not putting words in that guy's mouth. But uh, so, I mean, for an author to create books to help somebody, you know, that might have a tough time nurturing that love of reading like that, that absolutely deserves accolades. I'm absolutely into that. Thanks. I appreciate it. But uh, there are a lot of people out there doing it too. And that's, that's one of the things I love about the modern writing era, especially with YA and middle grade. There are a lot of writers out there and publishers who are really interested in doing that. In fact, one of the things about dyslexia, uh, I have dyscalculia, which is this dyslexia, but with numbers. Yep. Um, but one of the things about dyslexia is uh, a lot of those kids are really good visual learners and things like comic books. Um, there, there's a whole new wave of graphic novels and comics being written for that group so that they see the story with minimal words and they can understand and, and get the education, get the, the, um, the immersion in literature without necessarily having to see those big blocks of gray text all the time. And um, I'm actually working with DC Comics on something right now, a little hush-hush, but it's for that, that same, same thing. That's awesome. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't even have to ask, but I mean, I fought the battle myself on more than one occasion about the legitimacy of, of graphic novels as a, a form of reading. You know, people will say, well, you know, it's not it's not the same as opening up uh, a book that's all words. And I, I would disagree. You know, yeah, a lot of people would disagree because uh, we, and we've, we've proved the model now. I mean, there's so many book uh, graphic novels out there, things things like uh, Ghost World and and. Um, uh, what's the one set in Iran? I forget. Blank oh, Persepolis. Yeah, Persepolis. Uh, there's a lot of them out there. Mouse, you know, my God, Art Spiegelman's books. There, there are a lot of books, a lot of graphic novels out there that there's no way you can point to that and say that's not true literature. You just mm. found a different way to tell a story. It's no different than if an actor goes on and, and does a soliloquy from, from Shakespeare. It's still performance. It's still literature. There's a lot, any way that gets us or gets that to a reader or, or uh, you know, somebody who's willing to learn, then it's a good way, no matter what yeah. way it is. To a degree, I think that 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 argument even also carries into like audiobooks. There are people out there who will say that you know it's it's not legitimate reading to listen to an audiobook. And again, I I would disagree. I you know as yes. as a as a teacher, I you, you see so many different learning styles, and to say that you know the way that one person intakes a book. Uh, versus the way uh, or a story even versus the way uh, another person intakes it, uh, it, it is is not valid is just ridiculous it is i mean look look at at the millions of blind folks who have learned to uh literature because of audio audiobooks books for the blind you can't tell me they are not learning deeply learning just because they're vision impaired that's bullshit so you know you are correct and uh, any way in which a story can be told that will reach the heart and mind of the of, of the reader, listener, whatever, is is a good way. And there's, you know, there, there's there's now a mountain of literature in support of that. Granted, it doesn't always get as much respect in every part of our country, but it is it is growing, and that's good. In fact, it's funny. I'm, right now, I'm doing an audio only project. I'm doing a, th- a three novella project for Audible that's going to be audio only because there are people who don't like to read but do like stories. We're giving him stories. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd actually I'd I'd love to talk a little bit more about your your work in comics. How did that? How did you kind of get started in that? It's a funny thing about that. First off, uh, you know, actually, 
just happen to have, um, because I'm about to frame it, the very first comic I ever bought with my own money. Oh, Fantastic wow. Four. For six, just six, audio. Seven. For just audio listeners, it's the Fantastic Four. What issue is that? It's issue 66. What lurks behind the beehive? How old is um, that? This is 1965-ish. Okay. Um, but uh, it was the introduction of, the introduction of the character, him, who later becomes Adam Warlock, uh, uh, who's going to be in the next Guardians film, Guardians of the Galaxy film. But um, when my brother went to Vietnam, he left me a stack of EC comics, and he left me a stack of mixed comics, mostly Marvel. But this was, so this was talking 1964-65, you know, he left me this stuff. And um, I got hooked on comics. Roll four, and I was a Marvel kid most of my life. I got to DC. I followed Jack Kirby over to DC when he went to DC. Got into the Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill, Green Lantern, Green Lantern eras, and, and the, the Fourth Kingdom, all that stuff. And then um, after I started writing novels, my agent and I were trying to strategize how best to get on Marvel's radar, how, how to pitch to Marvel, because we had no connection to Marvel at all. You know, I didn't know. You know, I knew people. I knew of people who were writing for Marvel, but. You know, you can't always ask someone, hey, can you introduce me? You know, it doesn't always work that way. And I was kind of a new kid on the block still. This is 2000, late 2008. So I was only like two and a half years into my, my fiction career. Right. And then out of the blue, I'm sorry, 2009. And out of the blue, I get a phone call from Axel Alonso, the editor in chief of Marvel Comics, just like out of the blue. And he's and I'm like, he's like, uh, Mr. Mayor, I just finished reading one of your novels, finished reading uh uh, Patient Zero it just came out, and I just just read it, and I absolutely loved it. I got on an airplane, uh, bought, bought it at a kiosk in L.A. on a flight back to, to New York, and just thought maybe ask you if you'd possibly want to write for Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you bastard. <laughs> yeah, st- stands as the stupidest question I've ever been asked. Uh, and I, I told Axel that, too, and I said, you know, now luckily this was this was done by phone. And I have a good phone voice. Physically, I'm doing the Snoopy dance in my underwear all over my office, <laughs> which for a guy who's six four and built like Bigfoot is not a pleasant sight. That's a, that's a sight that's not going to go away quickly if you happen to see it. But on the phone, I'm like, well, of course, if we can work out the numbers, I'll put in touch with my agent, blah, blah, blah. You're off the phone. And I, I think I just sat there and stared at the phone for like half an hour. It's like, all right, they just asked me to write a, 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 an eight page Wolverine short. Um, as the backup feature for the Wolverine anniversary issue, holy shit! Um, so that's how I got into comics, and uh, I, I had never seen a comic book script. So I actually went to a back when Borders was open, went to a Borders bookstore. Uh, the one near me had a comic book rack near the in, in, a, in the cafe section. Sat down, picked up a couple comics, and tried to reverse engineer them because I know that you know when you write a comic, the writer decides how many panels and tells the artist what goes in each panel as well as writes the dialogue. So I kind of reversed engineered it to teach myself what a script looks like. Wrote, wrote the eight page script. Um, they hired the amazing Tom Coker to do the artwork, which was, you know, the story called ghost it was a Wolverine. It's kind of a reflective Wolverine story. And, um, they liked it so much. He said, all right, so, um, how about you do a Punisher story for me? Oh. And, uh, the funny thing there was, he said, I want you to do a Punisher max story, a 32 page standalone mm-hmm. And I hadn't really read comics since about 1990. I had no idea what Punisher Max was. I thought that was a character's name, Punisher Max. Turns out it's a hard R-rated version of the Punisher. <laughs> and, you know, I when I found that out, I said, well, you know, 
that's pretty intense stuff. Like, what do you want me to do? And he said, look, just go over the top. I want you to go over the top. <laughs> really, go over the top. So I did. I sent a script into him, and he called me. He says, are you out of your fucking mind? This is like, we can't do this. <laughs> you said over the top. Have you read what I write? And he's like, dude, um, over the top for comics and over the top for novelists are a different wattage. Just dial it back from, like, um, this is going to get you arrested and on watch lists down to, you know, it's hard R rating. I'm like, okay. So I did Naked Kills, and um, then I think the next one I did was a, a Wolverine. No, this was a Marvel Zombies Return. It was uh, four of us. It was Fred Van Lent, David Wellington, Seth Graham Smith, who did Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I. Uh, Bourbon may have been involved in the, in the plotting process of that. <laughs> and we each did a different issue of that. And um, I, I even have somewhere up on my shelf... Uh, somewhere up there is, is the Wolverine zombie statue that, that goes with that, uh, that was, that was done. But, um, so that was how I got into comics and I, you know, I went up writing a bunch of different comics, uh, mostly, mostly limited series, Captain America. Uh, I, I had my own little franchise within Marvel called Marvel universe versus the Punisher, a Wolverine and, a, and an Avengers one. And, um, then they asked, Asked me if I'd like to write Black Panther comic. Ooh. Which, that comes with a story. I'll give you the short version of the story. My father, who was a, a major asshole, ran the local chapter of the KKK. So oh, my I'm, God. Yeah, so he was, yeah. And he was Underline also a, asshole. Yeah, and he was also a criminal and a bad guy. So, um, you know, my exposure to people of color as a child was understandably skewed. And when the Black Panther was introduced, in the, and, and I had a couple of the old my brother's old comics from Black Panther uh, from uh, Fantastic Four where they introduced Black Panther. And uh, I showed that to my dad. I said, look, here's, here's a, a you know, most of black people have no intelligence. Here's a black guy. that's smart. And he takes the comic and rips it up and belts me. And that was the end of the conversation. So then I started collecting the comics, keeping them over my grandmother's house. Um, and then in 1970, in 1971, uh, they did an issue of Black Panther, uh, Fantastic Four, where he gets arrested in, their, in the Marvel Universe's version of South Africa. And Ben, you know, the thing and the torch go to break him out. And I was looking at the cover and I'm thinking, OK, the torch, when he's a flame, is red. He's a red man. The thing is kind of brownish and the panther is black. Hmm. Because Reed and Sue, the two really white characters, were not in that issue. <laughs> and, I, and I'm thinking, this can't be an accident. So I took it into my library, the same librarian who was the secretary for those clubs of writers. And she said, well, it's a story about apartheid. I'm like, what's that? And she said, have you ever heard of the Jim Crow laws? And, and ever heard of Martin Luther King? And I said, yeah, I heard of him. My father had a party when he died. He was a bad guy. And I'm like, she's like, ah! So she sat me down and explained the history of racism to me. Um, and talk about opening my eyes, changing the whole trajectory of my life, because my father and I split in completely different directions from that point forever. And then I, I had told that story when I was being interviewed about something else I was doing at Marvel and told that story. Uh, and Reginald Hudlin, who was a black writer, the founder of the BET network, in fact, had been writing Black Panther at the time. I was about to step down and he, and he saw me at that interview and he's like, well, shit. I mean, here, here's a white kid who's, whose ass was saved by T'Challa. We should get this guy in there because that's a perspective we really haven't talked about. You know, has the Black Panther positively influenced white kids growing up? And um, so they asked me if I'd write the book. And I'm, I'm thinking, great, my father's going to spit in his grave like warp nine at this point. I love that idea. <laughs> um, 
And then he said, and then for a little extra gift, I had part of my adult life, like 30 years of my adult life, I'd been teaching women self-defense. And um, so just as an extra gift, they decided to, they had T'Challa injured in a battle with Dr. Doom and Shuri stepped up to be the Panther. So I got to write the feminist Black Panther for two years. Ooh. An A. <laughs> and um, it was great because even even the actress who plays Shuri was, was really excited about that, my storyline. And there's rumors, I don't know if they're true or not, that, that some of my Doom War storyline may show up in, uh, in the next Black Panther movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I introduced... Doom, um, Fantastic Four, Submariner, and a bunch of other characters into my storyline, and Shuri was the Panther in that storyline. And the only, the only, right now, the only part of my storyline that went up in the first movie is the patterns on the Panther's costume come out of the alchemical symbols that we had him wear, you know, when he was trying to reclaim his power after being injured. But I, um, I love that movie. Uh, that's one of my yeah. That, so for me, my per my personal favorites is a. Uh, is that an Iron Man one? I just they're awesome. Yeah, Iron Man one is is one of my favorites. I I love the, the Black Sabbath soundtrack, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and also um, Civil War because the whole stunt team in Civil War, uh, all the stunt doubles and, and are all friends of mine. And, okay. Uh, they're all big fans of my Joe Ledger Thriller novels, mm. and um, you know that's a lot of fun. You know. Mm. That, the guys, the guys who choreographed that fancy knife scene where Winter Soldier's flipping the knife around, you know, they choreographed that. And um, Spencer Mulligan, who's the head of that team, went on to become the the stunt double for uh, the Punisher in the TV series. Oh wow! So it's it's kind of fun having having uh, friends who are in the Marvel movies. And actually, I can't name names yet, but one of the writers of one of the bigger Marvel movies is actually writing the screenplay to um, My Rotten Ruin. Uh, for Alcon Entertainment. Oh wow! That okay. Sign me up for watching that. <laughs> um, for real quick though, for Iron Man one, it it was like it was really interesting watching the a superhero during when the uh, you know we were fighting Iraq. Uh, was it Afghanistan or Iraq at that point? It was two thousand what eight or nine? Well, yeah. when we were in, when we were in the Middle East um in the earliest days and it was just kind of weird but exciting to see iron man kill a bunch of taliban well, you know ta taliban and isis not exactly you know if you're going to pick villains all right those guys we don't like those guys no uh what i'm glad of is that they didn't make all middle eastern uh characters uh bad guys um That'd be which, bad which is good i mean there are bad guys over there mm. i hate the bad guys there's millions of people who are not bad guys don't hit everyone no, I agree. Uh, did you happen to read um, that? What was it called? Uh, um, the Survivor Story. I can't remember. It's a SEAL team. Um, Mark Wahlberg plays the. Oh, the last, uh, last man, last. I know which one you're talking about. It's about the the one guy. Lone survived. Survivor. That's Lone it. Survivor. That's it. Yeah. I bring that up because um, when he gets uh, he, he gets rescued by some locals and. I mean, they, they're the, this one village is trying to prevent the Taliban, who know he's there, who Marcus Luttrell is there, the Navy SEAL. They're doing everything they can to save him. Yep. I, I've got a, a buddy of mine, a writer, Weston Oaks, uh, who's writes a lot of uh, thriller fiction, some horror fiction, you know, great guy. He's actually still military intelligence. He goes over there all the time, and, and you know, he loves the villagers. He loves those guys. Hmm. Um, they're not the bad guys, no. you know. Um, 
there are plenty of bad guys, but the, the, the average villager, they're just trying to you know, make a buck, feed their family and get through life. You know? Yeah. What a tough life that's going to be. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I believe I've heard you mention him. Maybe you're mistaken, but I feel like you've mentioned him at least a few times on your your now older podcast, Three Guys with Beards. Is that? Uh, well, West West was a, a guest on Three Guys with Beards, but he's also just been a good friend of mine for okay. forever. You know, since I got it. In fact, my first Bram Stoker Award, he was one of the presenters. Oh, I uh, which know. I think is when I met cool. him. You know, and his wife Yvonne Navarre is also a great writer, and they also wrote stories for V Wars for my anthologies. Uh, Wes is one of my go-to guys. He has an, an, a short story called No One Survives the Beach in the next issue of Weird Tales. Ooh. His wife has a story in the following issue of Weird Tales. <laughs> Can I have your life just for a moment? <laughs> it's, it's, you weren't kidding. That's boring. never boring. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, Well, it, 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 was, it was awful but not boring before. Now it's wonderful and never not boring. Uh, I, I never thought as the kid growing up, you know um, – in that really bad part of Philadelphia with a father like that, I never thought I'd be where I am now. You know, uh, I never thought I'd make it out of my teens, but I, I love my life and I'm very grateful for it. And I, I try to operate in what I call the no jackass zone. Mm-hmm. I, I only work with people who aren't jackasses who actually believe that generosity of spirit and that inclusiveness will make the world richer and make our own jobs richer People who, you know, are, you know, they don't they don't like somebody because they're different. Doesn't matter whether it's a, a skin color, race, gender, whatever. Immediately decide that that person's wrong. Mm. They're, they're not the people I'm going to invite into my into my projects. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to invite a lot of people into a lot of projects. But they, they got to be past muster as a decent human being. That is that's kind of like a process that we have on this show. Like if you're a dick or whatever, we don't yeah. want to talk to you. <laughs> Brent, yeah. Brent had some interesting questions about YA um, before we get even oh. further away from that. So why don't you ask him those, man? I, I was I was kind of curious why you started writing YA, but we kind of uh, covered that. So I guess I'm curious. Well, actually, about... we, we didn't cover why I started writing it. OK, let's hit it. It's a quick, quick story. So um, Christopher Golden, who was one of the three guys with beards, mm-hmm. um, had this is how I met him. He was editing an anthology called The New Dead. It's all stories, you know, kind of new takes on zombie stories. And um, he, uh, you know, invited me into the anthology. He happened to know my editor was also the editor for um, uh, the in-house editor for that anthology. And and, uh, so they reached out to me and said, would you write a zombie story for us? I had never written a zombie short story up to that point. And they wanted me to do something outside my wheelhouse. I wrote one. I'd never written a story with a teenage protagonist, even though it was not a teen anthology. And I'd never written a post-apocalyptic story up to that point. So I decided to, you know, since I just watched Night of the Living Dead, what happens 14 years later? Kid growing up 14 years after Night of the Living Dead in a small town. So and you know, learning to be a zombie hunter by training with his brother. And um, the story, you know, went into it was a novella, went into the anthology, got a lot of attention, which surprised me. And my agent, who usually doesn't read my short fiction, agents usually handle the longer stuff, read it and said, you know, that's the opening of a young adult novel. And I'm like, no, it's not. Because you know, <laughs> I hadn't read young adult since To Kill a Mockingbird in the seventh grade. So, you know, oh, okay. so first she sent me a, a box of young adult novels like Rick Reardon and, and Holly Black and and um, you know, Scott Westerfeld. I'm like, holy shit. What, why? It got really great. Um, and then um, she, she asked if she could shop it around. 
She shopped it. And I, I said, you know, you're not going to sell. It's a waste of your time. One auction later, after several companies bid on it, <laughs> Simon & Schuster made a deal we, we could not say no to. And it became, the at the time, the biggest book deal of my career. And it's right now um, the second biggest selling novel of my career after Patient Zero. It's sold in countries all over the world. Um, it's required reading in thousands of schools. Wow. And I had no intention of writing it as a YA. In fact, I'm not sure I really wrote it as YA even when I was writing, finishing it, writing all the novels, because I was just telling a story about teenage kids, but I wasn't necessarily writing to any particular age group. I was less potty mouthed. That was my only concession <laughs> to YA. Um, but uh, I, had, I had, you know, that's how I got involved in YA. And that book, I don't know, it's in 26th printing now. You know, it's it's nuts. And I just my the seventh in that series comes out. Lost Roads comes out in November. It's now being it's being adapted as a webtoon, which are comics formatted for your cell phone. Mm. It's the number one horror comic on webtoon with um, a quarter million subscribers. Holy and shit. Um, yeah, I know that that's like holy shit. And it's being made into a movie with Alcon. So all that because my agent won the argument as she has won every argument telling me that I didn't necessarily know what I was writing in terms of genre because I just write whatever story I want. Um, so that's how I broke into why. <laughs> I, I found your, uh, I found rotten ruin in uh, the weirdest place. My wife and I, um, my son's seven months old now, but uh, before the pandemic, we, there's this awesome, um, I don't know what kind of store you call it. It's, it's got used baby products. Like they're nice. And uh, there's a very small book rack. And I'm looking through it, and I'm like, I'm so, I'm like, probably reacting to. I'm a large man too. I'm six three, and I have a shaved head and a beard, so like, I don't look like I would get very excited over silly things, but I do. And I start freaking out. I'm like, to my wife and mother, I'm like, Hey, look it, it's Jonathan Mayberry's book. They're looking at me like, <laughs> Okay. I'm like, I interviewed him. This is so cool. I'm getting this. <laughs> So that's my input for that, Brent. Go ahead, buddy. Nice. I I I love YA. I mean, um, you yeah. said that you know you ran through a couple, um, among others, Rick Riordan books. I I love his books. Um, I got best really opening into them. lines of any writer ever. They they you you can fly through them in like a day or two. Even the like 400, 500 pagers, they're just so engaging. Yeah. Um, I mean, I found myself picking them up at the age of probably like twenty two, twenty three. Um, and I've continued picking them up over like the last 10 years or, or so. Um, but so I'm, I'm curious, you touched on this a little bit. Uh, now that you've written in it, what is your definition of YA? The only thing that defines YA for me is the characters of teenagers. Um, the story is from their point of view. It's not an adult remembering back to when they were kids, uh, which there are novels like that. This you know, like To Kill a Mockingbird is technically told in retrospect, you know, thinking back to her childhood, um, whereas YA is that is that kid's experience. And it's from their point of view. And the kids are the ones that solve the problem. No adults rescue them. The kids solve the problem. To me, that's that's YA. Everything else is um, it's just storytelling. You know, I I'm a little more picky about what defines middle grade, because middle grade is for fourth, fifth, sixth graders, and they're not as complex readers. So. You, know, you tend to have a single character uh, narrative, even you know, fewer ensemble cast, fewer subplots that don't involve the main character, no romance. But in YA, you know, I remember being a, t a kid, you know, there's a lot of romance, sex, drugs and rock and roll in high school, you know. Um, so 
I, I and I don't pull punches when I when I write YA. I, I don't think. Yeah. So there's a lot of nasty stuff that happens in the Rotten Ruin books. Holy crap. Yeah. I I don't think you're doing a uh, a service. Not you, but if you're an author or adult and you're sugarcoating everything, especially at teenagers, you're not doing them any. You're gonna have them walk into the real world and say, "What the hell do I do?" Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I wish more, you know, more adults uh, were respected kids enough to tell them the truth. Mm. They, they, they try to shelter kids and that all that does is make you vulnerable to the realities of life when you get there. I mean, you can, if you, if it's something controversial and you're afraid of the, how the kids are going to react, let them read it and have a conversation. You know, kids also self edit. If it's not for them, they won't read it. You know, if it's mm. not, so I'm, I'm not worried about, uh, I, I don't, if I make any editorial changes, it's never because I think kids can't handle it. It's because maybe that that's that doesn't you know work in this particular story or whatever. But I throw a lot of stuff in there. And in fact, when Rotten Ruin first came out, uh, I was down at the Austin Teen Book Festival, and uh, they I don't know if you know who who Paolo Bagliapucci is. He wrote the oh, Breaker, pa- right? no, 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 uh, pa- uh, I can't think of his name. He came out with the Wind Up Girl. Yeah, yeah, that guy. That's, that's so a, yeah. The, the, the two of us went up in a room with 500 librarians who were there to ask us very pointedly why there are adult content, uh, why there's adult content in our books. And we're, we're like, oh, crap, because we had to defend every word, every scene and so on. But he and I talked about it in the green room before that. And we're like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go in there and tell just tell them the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat a goddamn thing. If they don't like the book, they don't like the book, you know. And we were very frank with them. And then what happened is we went up with 500 advocates for our books. Um, and the Scholastic, when they do the book fairs, they put our book covers on the cover of the box of question or troubled books. And all it did was sell more copies of the books. You know, I think it's a uh, Paolo Baguccio-Lapi. I'm probably butchering it. Bagliapucci. It definitely sounds like you're butchering it. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I, I've, I've listened to a lot of people talk, uh, people who actually write YA talk about, you know, their definitions of it. And a lot of the things you said kind of, um, you know, mirror what a lot of other people who write it say. Um, my definition used to be that I thought YA was toned down, um, and which hmm. is obviously the polar opposite of what you're saying. <laughs> and I have come to agree with that. Um, but I think my favorite thing that you kind of highlighted there was just saying that the, the teenagers or the main characters are going to solve the problem. There's not going to be a deus yeah. ex machina with the adults swinging in and saving the day. Um, yep. I like that kind of established tone. Yeah. And one of the things when, when I when I talk about YA, um, in, like especially if I'm talking YA zombie fiction, because I, I've spoken about that all over the world. Um, and one of the things about that is in adult zombie fiction, for example, the adults usually can't work things out and they wind up becoming a danger to one another. And then they all die at the end or just a couple of escape. <laughs> Look at any George Romero film. George was a buddy of mine, but he had no no optimism about adult. Of course he was. <laughs> um, but in teen fiction, it's usually the teens at some point they, they gather knowledge and share it and collectively they're more they're powerful enough to to overcome whatever their obstacle is, and that's why the, the young adult books like like um, uh, like my Rotten Ruin series like you know a lot of other series Harry Potter books and, and others you know the, the kids there are powerful adults in their lives but the kids have to figure it out 
because it, that's what kids do. Kids acquire knowledge and they are more likely to work together as a team than adults are because mm. there's less ego involved in solving the problem. They just want to solve the problem. Um, and uh, so I, I like this, the thread of optimism that runs through YA fiction. I think more adults would benefit from reading a lot of YA. Hmm. Yeah, and it's not a forced optimism, like you said, just kind of the way that uh, that, that they operate kind of just uh, results in that, you know, be less yeah. less um, butting heads over who's going to be the leader and then getting everybody eaten and torn apart by zombies and all that. Yeah. Uh, now, piggybacking off Patrick's, of course you did comment uh, that you know George Romero. Didn't you edit an anthology with him? I did. And in fact, um, so the way that, that came about, uh, when I was 10, I snuck into a movie theater to see the world premiere of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> I went with a buddy of mine. Halfway through the film, right around the time the, the two young teenagers uh, got blown up by the gas pump and the zombies were eating them, he split. He couldn't take it. My buddy left. <laughs> He had bedwetting issues, like well into his 20s. I stayed to see it twice. So that, that same planet, different world, right? And I, I, every day I would go back and sneak in. I know how to sneak into the theater and would see the movie again. So roll forward to you know when I'm when I'm a published author, um, I, I do a lot of like Spooky Empire and a bunch of other con- conventions around the world, Dragon Con and so on. And I went up on a lot of panels with George Romero. And the man, I mean, he was he was. He's pretty much the closest to to a, a god to me in terms of my own personal pantheon. I mean, nothing is as influential. Well, I, I'd say Night of the Living Dead and I Am Legend, which there is actually a connection between the two. Um, those two were really landmark for me, pivotal for me. So I had the idea for an anthology of stories set around Night of the Living Dead. And I reached out to an editor, the editor who does my, my Joe Ledger books, and I, he said, well, if you can get George Romero's blessing, you know, maybe get, maybe ask him for a cover quote or something. I'm like, all right. I'll, so I called him and, um, you know, he's like, OK, you know, I, I made the pitch for the thing. He says, OK, I have three conditions. And I'm like, oh, crap. He said, condition one, I want to co-edit it with you. I'm like, OK, that's going to be pretty easy to agree to. So condition two, I want to write a story for it. I'm like, I think we can manage that as well. Yeah. And, and condition three, he said, um, I want you to write a story, me, to write a story that connects my my books, Dead of Night and Fall of Night, to Night of the Living Dead. He Ooh. said, I love those books. They're my favorite zombie books, which, by the way, made me ugly cry a little bit. Um, favorite <laughs> zombie books, you know, they have smart science in it. And he says, when, when, I, when we did Night of the Living Dead, we didn't know anything about science. That's why the science in Night of the Living Dead makes no sense. You know, he said, you you know, you, you did your research. Um but you have a character I really liked and you and you appear to kill him off at the end of the second book. I don't want him dead. I want to figure a way to, to have him alive and bring him all the way to the house of Night of the Living Dead. If you can agree to that, then I'll, I'll then you have my blessing. I'm like, yes. So that story, Lone Gunman, is in the anthology Night of the Living Dead. Um, and uh, the book came out five days before George died. It was the last thing he completed before he died. Wow. And um he was a great guy. We used to have these long, rambling phone conversations, believe it or not, talking about Project Runway, which was his secret obsession. He loved that show. He got <laughs> me hooked on the show. And here we are, two grown men talking about Project Runway and who got voted off unfairly. It's surreal that I was having those conversations with George Romero. I'm just saying. Um, so the book came out did really well. And it, it has stories in it by everyone. 
you figure um, you have Brian Keene, one of the great horror writers of our age, Carrie Ryan, who did Forest of Hands and Teeth, Chuck Wendig, you know, who's tr tremendous horror writer, Craig Engler, who created uh, Z Nation, who's now the head of Shutter TV. Mm. Um, you have um, Isaac Marion, who wrote Warm Bodies, uh, Jay Bonin Singer, who did all the Walking Dead novels, Joe Lansdale, great guy, um, uh, Mike Carey, who did Girl with All the Gifts. And so on. You got all, and, that, and Neil Schusterman, who won the National Book Award. So we, we had this incredible lineup of writers. And um, right now, there's there's a little bit of TV interest. And uh, that's all I can say about that right now. That's a, that's amazing. And you know what? This is pure coincidence. But we recorded an episode last night with um, a comedian from Pittsburgh. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Matt Light. But um, as a joke... As a joke, I had the intro of, like, what got you into horror. Um, I, he worked with Doug Bradley, so I knew there was some horror okay. connection. With a, with a wrestling company, he had a part in that is no longer. But um, he said, I watched Night of the Living Dead. Same, not the remake, the one that you just described, the original George Romero one. It scared him so bad as a kid that he was done. He was your friend. <laughs> yeah, pretty I much. Speak, uh, I can't speak uh, on the bedwetting issue. I don't know. Uh, oh, I bet he did. <laughs> I bet he did. That, see, that's the thing. A lot of people who, you know, who live nowadays and who've, who've seen so many zombie stories and the walking dead and, you know, game of Thrones, which had zombies in it. And, you know, they're, they're so inundated with zombies. They, they don't really know how this thing started. There was nothing like night of the living dead until that movie came out. There was nothing like that. Um, and it scared the hell out of it. It was the first um, midnight movie that, that you know, drive-ins would have midnight movie shows. That was the first one, first midnight movie that, that you know, Rocky Horror was the second. Mm. And um, I didn't know that. They, they, you know, that that was the place you took you took your girlfriend around Halloween to see Night of the Living Dead. She, you know, she would all but crawl into your shirt pocket. She was so scared. <laughs> Um, and it was a rite of passage to have been able to watch that with your eyes open, which was a mm. thing back then, you know? So, yeah. And, and Romero was such a great guy. He was such a good friend. Um, but yeah, I, 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 that was one of my dream projects. I've gotten to do, this is a weird thing about my career. I've gotten to do a number of my dream projects. I've gotten to write an X-Files novel and, and edit three X-Files anthologies. Got to write for Marvel Comics. I'm writing for DC now. I got to do an uh, edit an aliens anthology. That's cool. I got to write a predator short story, a Hellboy short story. You know, it's like it's crazy. I my my life is surreal. Even I'm not sure I'm awake. I think I might be dreaming all this. But if anyone wakes me up, I'll fucking kill them. <laughs> That's fair. I would do the same. Yeah. Did did you happen to like my personal favorite Romero movie? Um, and I don't know, for anyone listening, I don't know if you're aware, but the remake of Night of the Dead, 1990, is a Romero movie. He directed it with most of his original crew. And Tony Todd is a, is what well, is Ben. Um, yep. and Bill, Tony's a buddy of mine, too. Tony Todd is? Yeah. Oh, okay. obviously. I mean, like, everyone. <laughs> well, the thing about, if, if you write this sort of stuff and, you, and you're in this world, you get to know these guys. Like Ken Faree from, uh, uh, who played Peter in the original Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. We've been friends for a long time. Judith O'Day, who played uh, Barbara, is a friend of mine. Uh, so you, you get cool. to know them. And, you know, it's it's so cool. Galen Ross, who was in, in Dawn, and, and uh, um, Eugene Clark, who played Big Daddy in, in uh, Land of the Dead. You know, it's it's fun because you know, we we were on panels together, we we hang out together, and it's it's. I just saw Tony uh, last 
forget where the hell I was, uh, for which convention I was at. I think it was in Fanex, maybe. Oh, Fanex in, in Salt Lake City. Pre-pandemic. With Tony. What's that? The pre-pandemic world. Yes, the pre-pandemic world. Now, I'm curious as to why we got this uh, bullshit pandemic and not a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, zombies would be easier. We could at least evade them more, you know, especially for the slow ones. Fast ones, I think I think I'm toast because, you know, I'm, I, I'm a good fighter, but I, I can't run with the, with the dam. So if we get the Olympic sprint team zombies, I'm, I'm, I think I'm done. <laughs> the 28 days later ones are <laughs> off the table. Yeah. Well, now, here, here's, a, here's the thing about that. 28 days later is technically not a zombie story because it's a rage. Yeah. But it, it is a George Romero invented that genre too with his movie called crazies 1972. Yep. Um, and they, they borrowed a hell of a lot from the crazies to make uh, 28 days later. And also from day of the Triffids too, from in a lot of its setup. Um, but George Romero created both the zombie genre and the fast infected genre. He doesn't get enough love for it. I, I wasn't aware of the last part. That's pretty damn cool. Yep. Uh, Brent, take it away, man. I'm still digesting everything. Yeah, all, all the royalties, <laughs> all the respect, no matter how you zombie, you know, you gotta, you gotta hail to the king, baby. <laughs> hail to the king. <laughs> um, so speaking of your ability to fight uh, zombies, um, tell us a little bit about your uh, experiences with martial arts. I, you are in the martial arts hall of fame. Which yeah. I didn't even know was a thing. Is well, Joe Orlando still in that? I don't know. Like, he should be. But uh, here, here's the thing. There are, there are a couple different martial arts halls of fame. I'm in, I'm in two of them. And one is called the uh, Action Karate International Hall of Fame. That's that's the Hall of Fame where you have, you have people like like Jet Li, Jackie Chan, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on. I was I was inducted into that in 2004, mostly because of my body of published works, nonfiction works. I was a nonfiction writer for years. Uh, taught martial arts history at the college level, wrote hundreds of articles and training manuals for, for SWAT special forces. So, you know, I've written a bunch of stuff. And also, um, you know, I was the expert witness for the Philadelphia district attorney's office for any murder cases involving martial arts. So I have a body of experience. I was a bodyguard in the entertainment industry. You know, I've got a lot of, you know, combat experience with this. Um, so I was inducted into that. And also because, um, a lot of the folks running this particular style of, of jiu-jitsu that I, I practice and teach, a lot of them have died off. I went up being the last man standing, so I went up getting inducted into the World Soki Ship Head of Family um, Council, which is another international uh, hall of fame for Japanese-based martial arts. You're inducted in if you're the head of head of style. I was the head of family for the United States because wow. everyone else just died, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I got that for merit or longevity. I'm not sure which one, but uh, so yeah, I'm in, I'm in a couple of those, but I've been doing jujitsu since 19, well, it's 56 years now. Um, and uh, I retired as an Anthony black belt. And the thing with that is you stop testing after a certain point. And again, they keep promoting you if you are alive after a certain point. So around sixth, I think you stop testing and then they, they just promote you. If you're, you know, do you have a pulse? Yeah, here's a belt. Um, but uh I'm, I'm retired now. I, I do consulting stuff. I, I do uh, workshops on writing fight scenes and action scenes. And uh, my last gig before, I wish I still had this company, before I became a full-time writer, I had a company called CopSafe that taught safe arrest and control workshops for law enforcement so they didn't overdo it and do too much and cause injury or death. And I wish the hell we had had that company now. Because yeah, that's, that's a lot really of, useful. Yeah, I mean... A, a, 
I, I support Black Lives Matter, but I do want to say one thing about cops. Sometimes, you know, some of the cops out there are doing bad things because they're assholes and a lot of them are racist and so on. Uh, or uh, the ones who are doing the damage, a lot of them are. But there are also cops who overdo it because they don't they haven't been trained properly. Hmm. A lot of departments don't have the funding to train them properly. So they don't they're out there and, and they're humans. They panic and they overdo it. You know, uh, they, they cause harm when, when they simply don't know what else to do because they haven't been sufficiently trained. The, the issue is with the people who, who provide the training, not not preparing them for it. So there's that. And there's the racism, the racism thing. You know, that's that's somebody else's issue to handle. You know, our company was about teaching them how to stay the, on the lowest tier of the force continuum so that they didn't hurt people. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I still had that company. Yeah, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, so I won't I won't keep you guys long. But I mean, the the numbers um, of people with disabilities who are killed by officers who just aren't sure how to react. It's it's staggering if you look it up. And that's definitely something that could be very much helped by the proper training. Yeah, almost all of it can be helped by proper training. Um, You know, people talk about defunding the police and which is actually not what what the main protesters are saying. They're saying change some of the funding to, for other things. But with within that funding, more of it should go for training, psychological training, personality training, as and also physical training so that we don't have these conflicts. Cultural sensitivity, I mean, shouldn't be just a course you sit through. It should actually reach you. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot that can be done to fix the system. And I hope that this will, after all the the, the protests are, are uh, addressed, and you know my sympathies are definitely with people who have been hurt by this. Um, I would like to see a move toward proper training and and restructuring with police departments. I think that'd be. I mean, we need police, but we don't need bad police. We need we need more and more of the good police, and there are good police out there. Mm-hmm. It'll so, definitely be interesting to see how Minneapolis, you know, kind of leads the charge on that. You know, when 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 the dust settles. All eyes are on them. Yep. Now for um, three guys with beards, I did want to ask. Um, you guys did mention in your last episode um, that Bracken, McLeod, and I forget the other two who are Tom taking Snagoski. over. Thompson Nagoski. Okay. It, who's the uh, third one? Uh, James Moore. He was an oh, yeah, of the founding right. members. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, they're they're now, now the new three guys of beards. Christopher Golden and I had to back off because we're just simply too busy. Um, James will be do a great job. Bracken is a fantastic guy. And Thompson Nagoski has been a friend of all of ours for years. He is He's basically the funniest, grumpy old man you'll ever meet. And I say that even though I think he's younger than I am, but he he has the grumpy old man gene. I think it was a grumpy old man in, in preschool, probably. <laughs> of the three, and I, it hasn't been a lot. I've I've I've, I've conversed with Bracken. I like him. He he's Break a he, yeah he's a nice guy. He's got a fiery temper with the right things, and I mean I'm a fan. I I, yeah. I would love to talk also, with him. He has he has a great name, Bracken McLeod. You know, he, I mean, it sounds like a like a like an action hero, Bracken McLeod. You know. I think he was in Braveheart. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think Jonathan said he's going to be in that sorcerer sword sorcery uh, story that he's writing. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should name a character Bracken McLeod. That'd be great. I mean, I to go back to that story, I, I loved it because it's different than anything I really have read before, and. I do too. Like you, uh, I like crows. I like ravens. They're cool animals. 
I want to see kind of more with that main character in, in The Crow. Uh, Julian Gunn, Julian Touched by God. Uh, he's a fun character. I've only written the one story. I was going to pitch a Julian novel, but what oh. happened is um, right around the time I was kind of thinking about doing that, uh, my editor at St. Martin's asked me to pitch um, an original fantasy series, epic fantasy series um, to St. Martin's. And he said he prefers something that it's, that's its own self-contained world. So rather than historical fantasy, which Julian is set in the 12th century. So I created a new character called Kagan. And uh, we, I went up selling two books, Cake and the Damned. For, I have to write the first one and deliver it in December. And I haven't started it yet because I'm working on another book. But I'll be diving into epic fantasy. Um, but I do want to come and come back and, and, and play with Julian again. I might create a version of him that works in the new series because I do like the, you know, the, the kind of battered, slightly crazy sorcerer, young sorcerer who has, you know, crow familiar and, um, uh, a horse with, with some real personality. Mm. So I, I, I might, or I'll just simply do some more Julian short stories, but it was fun to write a sword and sorcery story with a lot of background. I liked it. It seemed like there's a lot of research involved. Um, now for St. Martin, uh, there's also, uh, your upcoming novel, Ink. What can you uh, tell us about that? Ink is one of my favorite things I've written. Glimpse is my favorite novel and it came out two years ago. And, and there's a, a character, two characters who were supporting characters in glimpse. One is a tattoo artist known as Patty cakes. And the other <laughs> is a, um, very strange private investigator named monk Addison who has the faces of, of murder victims all over his body tattooed on his body. And what ha- what he does is when somebody's murdered, their ghost kind of comes and, and asks him to not solve the murder, but prevent other people from being murdered by the same person. Um, and so he's, he's, kind of like killing you know killing off these 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 serial killers um but there there's a downside to it when he tattoos when he has their face tattooed on his body he gets a little bit of ink from the a little bit of blood from the crime scene has it mixed with tattoo ink and the artist tattoos the face it allows him to relive their their death their murder oh, and God. Gives some clues to help find them find the killer um but if he does that and, he, and if he takes this guy off the board there's actually a cost to the ghost. The ghost is now trapped on earth with him forever. So he's haunted by all the ghosts of the people who, whose lives he's avenged. And um, it makes it a little difficult when you go to bed every night and they're all standing around your bed and some of them scream. Um, <laughs> oh my God. But, but the novel Inc. takes him and makes him the main character of the novel. Um, in the story, there's someone who has the ability, he, if he brushes a tattoo that you have, mm. especially one that has really important... Uh, memory ties to you the tattoo begins leaving your body and it, and it appears on his and he feeds on the memory and once the memory is gone when the tattoo disappears and your memory of it is completely gone forever so one character he steals the tattoo of her murdered daughter and every day she's losing more and more the memory of her murdered daughter and this guy is feeding on it he feeds on the intensity of those emotions it's a really vile vile guy it's intriguing um, yeah, he calls himself the Lord of Flies because he has tattooed flies on his body that he can send out and kind of use them to take over people who are emotionally compromised uh, or psychologically psychologically compromised and use them as as his kind of like assassins. He takes over a whole motorcycle club, in fact, and, and uses them as killers. It's a hell of a book. Um, I had so much fun writing it. I did a lot of research in the in the tattoo community. Mm. 
Um, and um, it's also set in the same town as my first three novels, the Pine Deep series. Hmm. So uh, I got to bring in some characters from those books. Um, but it, it comes out November 27th. And it is one of the most satisfying books that are written. You know, it's a standalone, technically, even though we, he, the characters in the book, the, this book is self-contained. And I just loved researching and writing that book. So I, and I think people are going to dig it. It's, it's, it's deeply weird. I mean, you sold me, man. I, I mean, I like tattoos and that I have a fascination with the psychology of, of certain killers and the tattoo aspect of it. Uh, that's just different. Yeah, the, the tattoo community is really interesting. I'm not, I don't have any ink myself, but I know a lot of folks who are, and for different reasons. And when I was interviewed, I interviewed like two or 300 people in the tattoo community, um, asking them, you know, why they got certain ink, what the, what it meant to them. Is it something that they showed other people or not? Mm-hmm. Has the meaning changed? You know, and there's, there's so many different answers to that. Like one guy interviewed, I think it was the most incredible thing. All the tattoos on his back were negative. They're all bad things that have happened in his life. All the tattoos on his chest were all things that were positive. So he was walking away from the bad stuff and walking toward the good stuff. And his body was a reflection of that, that decision. Wow. How brilliant is that? How beautiful uh, is that? I've never heard of anything that metaphorically and physically deep before for a tattoo. Uh, wow, there, putting it behind hey, him. there are a lot of people with, with those types of stories. And this guy was a Vietnam vet who told me that story. Oh, shit. That makes it even more intense, I bet. Um, I actually have myself. I only got two more questions and then I'll toss it to Brennan. Um, Pandemica. Was that planned before the pandemic? It's a graphic novel uh, series. I see three issues released for June 6th. The the fifth issue was just actually coming out this week. Okay. But but the trade paperback, what happened is um, the trade paperback uh, was scheduled to come out, you know, this time. The, the issue was supposed to come out a couple months ago, but they held it off because Diamond Distributors, who distributes the comics to comic yeah. stores, none of their workers are essential workers, so they weren't able to distribute the comics. But, the you know, I pitched and sold that two years ago to IDW. Um, it was long before um, the, you know, the, the COVID-19 thing. Mm. And it, 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 we started it, it, came, it started coming out the end of last year. So by the time COVID hit, we'd already been cut, you know, three issues in. And people, you know, people ask me if I wrote it because of COVID. I was like, no, I wrote it two years ago. Okay. Um, my, my mistake. <laughs> but man, it, you know, you, you figure you've got massive protests, cities burning. You've got, um, you know, uh, conspiracy theories, government not doing the right thing to to uh, to deal with the the plague. It's hits a lot of interesting notes for what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go, go get Pandemico. All five issues are out now in trade paperback. I mean, from what I saw, it looks pretty damn cool. And then, actually, related to COVID-19, you got it on your website about uh, classes and workshops are strictly online. Is there anything for classes or workshops that you'd like to talk about? Well, um, right now we only have one more currently scheduled. It's actually this Saturday. Um, it's called Pitch Perfect, where you actually get to practice a, a pitch with a literary agent, not oh, wow. to try to sell it to that agent, but just to get a feedback on your pitch, either a query or an oral pitch. But um, we just finished the cycle of classes. I'll be scheduling a bunch of new ones, including more pitch perfect upcoming classes. I think in late August, we don't, we don't have the date yet. Will be another one of my three hour workshops on writing fight and action scenes. 
Uh, I'll be doing um, a panel discussion with um, for another class with Ray Porter, who reads my audio books, reads the Joe Letter books, and two other writers who use him, Scott Sigler and Peter Kleins, who are both top, you know, uh, horror, science fiction, thriller writers. Uh, we've got Act Like a Writer, which teaches you to be the 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 how to how to manage your career even if you're socially awkward. Uh, <laughs> that um, I'll be teaching classes on basically how to build a writing business and how to maintain your writing business, things like that. So there'll be cool. a lot of stuff coming up. And if people follow me on social media, just the trick is to spell my last name right. It's M-A-B-E-R-R-Y, not M-A-R-R-Y. <laughs> uh, but I advertise the classes ahead of time on, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay. All right, Brendan, uh, all you, man. So is, the, is that Ray Porter that does your audio books, the same Ray Porter who will be voicing Darkseid in the uh, – upcoming justice league <laughs> yes it is oh uh, dark side does your audiobooks that's yeah, that's yeah really well, something uh, ray's been my audiobook reader since patient zero since 2009 oh wow and went from just a guy who was doing audiobooks to one of my closest friends i mean he's like brother to me hmm. um and really one of my closest friends uh he's done 20 some audiobooks for me now the joe ledger series uh Come my dead of night, the most recent Rotten Ruin books, my steampunk western supernatural novel, Ghostwalkers, bunch of stuff. He's my go-to guy. He's he, and I hear his voice in my head when I'm writing. But yeah, he he was in the original Zack Snyder cut of um, of Justice League when Joss Whedon came in. He took out the dark side storyline, leaving Steppenwolf as the main character. And who the hell cares about Steppenwolf? Um, so the Zack Snyder cut has you know, all the stuff that Ray did in motion capture is dark side. So they're, they're going to do the, the Zack Snyder cut. And I couldn't, couldn't be happier that, that Ray's finally going to get some, some major league love because people have seen him in everything. Argo justified, um, modern family, sons of anarchy, um, almost famous. He's been in a million things, but he's one of those actors that just fades into whatever character he's playing. So you, you don't recognize it as him. His voice is distinctive. You know, he's done a lot of audiobooks, and um, he's he's a great actor. So I really hope this gives him an opportunity to have a much bigger career, even though I don't want him to stop doing my audiobooks. Yeah, he uh, he's definitely that guy that when he pops up in the show you're watching, you've got IMDb up on your phone before you know it, trying to yeah. figure out where you where you saw him in. Uh, so I have one more question that uh, we got whisked away from comics, and I forgot to ask it. Oh, so sure. you've You've written a lot of Marvel stuff, so I'm wondering who is your favorite character um, to write or just your favorite character? Is it the same? Uh, no, uh, my favorite character of all time um, is, a, is a cross between uh, Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four. I always like the, the, the smart hero and T'Challa, smart and tough, because you know, in the in, in the movies, T'Challa is not a scientist. In the, in the comics, he's 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 a scientist on a level with. Hank Pym and Tony Stark and, and uh, Reed Richards. Um, I love those two guys. My favorite character to write um, is, is, is kind of a weird thing, but uh, well, Wolverine, because I love the introspection. I, I, I go inside his head, kind of the samurai viewpoint, which a lot of informs a lot of his character. But Deadpool, and mostly as a supporting character. I love writing Deadpool as a supporting character. I used him in Marvel Universe uh, versus series. Um, and, and in my, my uh, Black Panther Doom War series, because he's just so goofy. He breaks the fourth wall. He's insane. Um, I, 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 you know, I have a kind of a goofy sense of humor. 
and some of those books, the storylines are very grim. You put Deadpool in there, you get comic relief without it breaking the 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 the, the dramatic tension of the story. So Deadpool's a hell of a lot of fun to write. The, the uh, rumor doing the rounds right now is that Ryan Reynolds pitched a uh, Deadpool versus the Marvel or at least the Fox Marvel universe for uh, Deadpool three. Is that a storyline you were involved with? No, no, but I, I hope that's true. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I am not yet directly involved in the Marvel movies. Um, anything is possible, but mm-hmm. um, I've been hearing some fun rumors about different things. Yeah, you mentioned you know um, with either Submariner or Doctor Doom, and I've heard those those rumors as well. It seems like at least one of those will probably pop up in Black Panther too. So hey, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? We, yeah. You'll see your your name on those credits maybe. <laughs> uh, the, the, it's possible. Um, and I've got there's some other comic book stuff that that's out there that. Uh, not Marvel stuff that I'm involved in that that is, you know, like V Wars was a comic, you know, and that that kind of only had one season on, on Netflix, but we're shopping it elsewhere. Um, my uh, Dead of Night series, I'm not Dead of Night, um, Bad Blood series I did for Dark Horse is um, is is at script level right now there. You know, it's not sold, but but producers are looking at the script and a couple other projects I have. And even Pandemic is being shopped right now. Oh, cool. Jonathan, uh We've really appreciated you giving us your time for this, man. It means a lot to us. Oh, my pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, I think needless to say, I can speak for Brennan on this. Seriously, if you want to come back anytime to promote anything, we got you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally down for coming back. Uh, I've got a couple of big things coming out uh, later this year and early next. Um, actually, one of the, the fun things that I have coming out in September, um, talking about middle grade stuff, is you guys have read Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, right? The original, well, I edited the Tribute Anthology with R.L. Stein and Brendan Reichs and Barry Lag and all that. Oh, no way. Comes out, uh, it's called Don't Turn Out the Lights, a tribute to Alvin Schwartz's uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It's the official tribute. 35 writers. Um, I mean, it's an it's a incredible lineup of writers, uh, and it comes out uh, September 1st. That's excellent. That's all. So, yeah. For that, uh, and I'm getting... yeah, and 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 hopefully I'll have some uh, Hollywood and some TV news because there's a couple of projects that, if things go well, we'll be making big announcements soon, hmm. and it'd be fun to come back and talk about those um, things I can't talk about now. But uh, I guarantee you, you guys would really dig this stuff because we dig a lot of the same stuff. Probably. So I'd love to come back and talk about it once I can talk about it. I guess yeah, my absolutely. final question for that would be, are you looking to adopt two uh, full-grown men for your <laughs> nephews or something? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, call you, I'll call you bodyguards. <laughs> yeah, my, okay. wife laugh, my wife would definitely laugh at that. They, hey, man, I, I appreciate your time again. And um, just so everyone knows, if uh, they aren't already, where can people follow you? So they can go to my website, jonathanmaybury.com. Again, spell the last name, M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. Um, I have a website, I, ha- uh, I have Twitter, Facebook pages, I've got Instagram, um, Snapchat, I'm pretty much all over social media, just a- anywhere you want to look, I'm probably probably going to find me, except Very Tinder, cool. I'm not there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that is, I haven't dated uh, for like seven or eight years. <laughs> uh, tw- 22 years, so yeah. We're, we're, you got me beat, sir. Yeah. Uh, all right, but, well, hey, have a yeah, great time. Come find time. me. Uh, well, I've already followed you on like four of them. Maybe Tinder if you go on that and I'll join. That would be weird, man. Swipe right. <laughs> what a terrible way to end this. All right, man. Have a good night. <laughs> we are in your mind. 
We are all around. You are now leaving. Deadhead space. What about language? Do I need to keep myself uh, G-rated here? I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> my kind of answer? That, that is definitely my kind of answer.